chapter 3, and if you were here last week, man, I almost felt like I don't know if I should even go over the rest of the text, only because Matt did such a beautiful job of showing us exhortation in it. But I want to take us through chapter 3 and a little bit of 4. So look at it with me. Chapter 3, verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory, by the way, was passing away, how will the ministry of the spirit be more glorious, not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, The ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted on the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in the craftiness, in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel should be of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Pray with me, would you please? On this beautiful night, Lord, you have ordained for us to sit in this room and enjoy you to sit and let your word transform our minds and hearts. And tonight in this room, Lord, you know every need. You know, Lord, 
everything, every battle being fought, every place, Lord, where we may appear to be conceding, every feigned victory, every horrible defeat. You know, Lord, the the people and the positions and the circumstances, Lord, that challenge every person here. But you know, Lord, and we do too, if we're really honest, that the problem isn't the things, it's us. So tonight, may we walk out of here so encouraged, so blessed, so strengthened in you, Lord, that all we can do in the end is say, Hallelujah, what an amazing God. So, Lord, speak fluent to every one of us tonight. Open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds to hear you now. Have your way. We commit this time to you and thank you for the privilege of being able to serve you and to study your word. So it's yours, Lord. Have your way. Jesus, in your name, amen. I would say tonight is that would any please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the final say. The context of what we've just read was Paul being challenged in regards to the area of ministry. How could Paul possibly be challenged by a group of people who saw the church planted? Hey, you know, it is almost unbelievable what a person can believe. That's a lie. Even though they've seen and experienced and known completely the opposite. If somebody speak it with enough conviction. It was Hitler who said, tell a small lie and no one will believe you. Tell a great lie and the world will follow. That was Hitler's words. And great lies are strong things. Paul had gone to a church. Well, there was no church when he got in there. It was just a group of people in a town known for its licentiousness, known for anything goes. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And the church that he had planted there really was a fundamentally different way of thinking than anyone else in that community. And let's be honest, that's rough. It's rough when you know you may be the only person at work, you may be the only person at your whatever it is, your knitting pool, your whatever, the place where you all hang out to watch football, whatever it is, you may be the only person that thinks the way you do. And after a while, that time kind of gets old unless you really have enough fellowship where you actually realize you're not the only weird, strange freak in the world. But in a place where a guy went and planted a church for a couple of years, imagine, basically, if you think about it, the only Christians at that point went to the church. Think about it. There was no other place you could go to in Corinth and find a Christian unless somebody from the church had preached the gospel to them. So you would expect to find the Christians in the church. You would expect to find the unbelievers outside of the church. But the problem is that just because a person is in the church doesn't mean they're a Christian either. Paul will tell the Corinthians, and we have clarity on that, that Satan himself masquerades himself as an angel of light. It shouldn't surprise us that those who serve him parade themselves as ministers of righteousness, not just sons of righteousness, but ministers of righteousness. Even Satan's employees, if you will, the guys who cash their check and at the bottom it signs Satan, parade themselves as ministers of righteousness. And there's two really strong bends to it. And they'll always be in the church until the Lord returns. 
until the Lord finally closes this thing up. There'll be those who lean to the law and the bondage of that law. And there are those that will lean to the bondage of licentiousness. The law, in essence, what it simply does is removes grace and says, if you want to do anything, you have to do it through these rules. And from that, maybe God will respond with something favorable in your life. That might be an attitude, that might be a look, that might be a blessing. But one way or another, you make it happen. You're the one that rests on your shoulders. Think about it. Think about the weight of a person that is living by a law, by the law. And that's not just Christianity. Every other religion is based on this to some degree, where you are the one responsible to make the motions. And if you do enough and pray enough and give enough and go to these places enough or do whatever and fast enough and whatever it is, maybe the response will be favorable. And that can creep into the church, and it still does today. Would we agree? And all it does is it's if you, then God. That's how it works. Now, God does tell us that God has made the first move. And as a result of that, we have a responsibility to that. But as a result of that, we receive from the Lord. But putting us first is always the wrong way in any form of love relationship. The second case, it actually makes a mockery of God's grace. In the first case, it dismisses God's grace altogether. It's about your works. It's about you earning or justice or equality or whatever the word that you want to use. On the other side of it, we make a mockery of God's grace by saying it doesn't matter. He'll forgive us. It doesn't matter what we do. So what we do in the second case, in the first case, if you think about it, we, in essence, really completely dismiss the gift Jesus has given us. In the second case, we completely dismiss the relationship from which that gift brought for us. Because in that case, it's like, well, I don't really need to have a really tight relationship with God. He's going to forgive me anyways. He's contractually obligated. Think about how horrible that is. In the first case, you will watch those who, if you pray this prayer this many times, and maybe you get those forwards. I have a term called forward junkie. Do you guys have those? And the person that, no matter what it is, they kind of get it, and then they have to forward it to all of their friends, and you just happen to be one of them. And it says at the bottom something like, if you really love Jesus and you don't want innocent children to die around the world, you'll forward this to all your friends or whatever. Like there's some weird guilt trip at the end of it. Or if you pray this prayer five times, clearly God's going to give you what you don't. And if you don't, you just want nuclear war or whatever it is. Well, you get the idea that sooner or later the whole idea of it is if you prayed this enough, if you did this enough or whatever, and you know that's how that works. And you can see that among Christians. God blesses you in some great way, and someone will say, oh, girl, you've been living right. I'm like, no, my God is just a God of grace, and we give ourselves the credit. On the second side of it, you just tell God what you want, and he'll, t- and he'll give it to you, because God is just can't wait to give it to you. And so you have a lack of faith. If you're not well, you have a lack of faith. There's a problem with that with Paul because he was ill. He had a problem with his eyes. He had a thorn in his flesh. So Paul must not have had enough faith. If you have enough faith, you'll be wealthy. Well, there's a problem with Paul because Paul wasn't wealthy. He was actually sort of a vagabond, a ragamuffin that went from place to place. And you could clearly see that part of what he did when he went from church to church was he he collected a collection, and part of it was to sponsor his ministry. Paul was not wealthy. So to say... If you have enough faith and you're living right, God certainly wants to bless you with wealth and health. 
you can understand why and understand that that is still prevalent in the church today. And what happens in a case like that is that somehow in it, if you aren't, if you get the flu, clearly you must be sinning. If you get a bill that's unexpected, clearly you must be sinning. And you live this whole life thinking that God owes you a trouble-free life. But it's in those troubles that we prove that God's peace exists. That's the problem. God wants the people around you to know that he's real. And the clearest way to show that is in the greatest tribulations in your life. That becomes rough. But they could still say that. And imagine if a guy came in and taught that. And he taught it with enough vehemence. And he he pulled up in the Bentley. And he's got the really nice Armani suit. And he's got his whole shindig going on. Smoke and mirrors and the lights. And he's got the full-on rocking band. And everything about it is really top-notch. To where the iTunes Festival looks like a hoedown in comparison. And you think, well, clearly this guy must be blessed by God. Look at all he has. And that's a real danger. And what Paul does in this, understand the context, is is that they're looking at Paul now and they're going, so maybe you're really not called to be a ministry. I don't even know if you're saved. And there becomes the danger. Sometimes in the second court, what you can find is, as long as we get the experience, we get the shakes, the shivers, the eebie-jeebies, the holy goosebumps, or whatever it is, I got the holy ghost goosebumps that clearly you must be okay. But I've learned this because I've been a musician way before I was saved. We've watched people get a lot of those same experiences. We watched women, if you you weren't alive, most of us, some of you were, faint over the Beatles. But I don't think it was a spiritual experience. Well, you can argue over the spiritual experience, but I guarantee you, it wasn't like they were getting slayed in the spirit. But they were clearly fallen over. So just to equate the experience with God is a dangerous thing. And you could say, well, I don't, it doesn't matter if I live my life however I live my life. God's going to forgive me anyways as long as I get this experience. Then what happens is Tuesday comes around and you don't feel saved. But let me warn you. God has called every one of you to ministry. Now, that doesn't mean every one of you will collect a check from the church. As a matter of fact, we don't even do that. But God has called every one of you to ministry. And in calling you to ministry, you are going to face opposition. And you will face opposition from those very same two places. So here is your pastor encouraging you to step up, encouraging you to be who God's called you to be. Let me lay this out in three very simple places. The first of them, again, is validation. What validates you? And we're going to look at that from a personal and a practical level. We did this a little bit before Matt came. And then what makes you sufficient from a personal and then a practical level? And then finally, what brings transcendence? What actually allows you to endure from a personal and a practical level? That's the way this plays out. The first three verses, by the way, clearly now we look at validation. Look at it with me again, starting in chapter 3, or chapter 3, verse 1. Do we begin to commend ourselves or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ. 
ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the flesh, that is, of the heart. The first thing is what validates me as I look at it from the perspective of a personal and then from the practical. From the personal, the only thing that's ever going to validate me is the cross. From the cross, God told me he would rather die than live without me. That's how important I am. From that perspective, I don't ever have to get praise or applause or letters or kudos or attaboys from any human being. Now, let's be honest. It always feels nice when it's genuine, but it's not necessary. And if you live for that type of praise, you will suck up to people that you know might be quick to do it if they make the rules clear. And you won't even know who you are anymore. Before I was saved, I was a musician who played in front of people. And there is a whole image machine. And they tell you, this is what sells. This is the sound that sells. This will draw the most people. And they sort of kind of stick you in a machine and you come out. You don't recognize yourself on the other side. And when people claim to love you in the beginning, it feels great. I'll be honest. It feels great because they're looking at you when they're applauding. But... You don't have to be brilliant to realize sooner or later they're applauding the candy-coated shell that has nothing to do with you. And you knew that if they knew who you really were, they'd run off screaming because it's very different from the person that others would make you. And you know what? And in all honesty, that's an archetype for every one of us if we're not careful. We can do that at work. We can do that at school. We can do that in our societies. We can do that because we want people to like us. But the problem is, by the time we try to figure out what they like, it's not even us that they like anymore. Does that make sense? And if you can't get your validation at the cross, the only person who really does know you perfectly, you will spend your whole life morphing in your environment just to be liked. You won't even know who you are anymore. And that's a very dangerous thing for a person who's supposed to lead others, wouldn't you think? Personally, anyone in ministry personally has to be validated at the cross. No place else. You will never get enough applause, enough, enough appraisal, enough attaboys or attagirls. You'll never get enough. And don't assume that anybody gets a lot. Don't assume I get a lot. Now, I'm not fishing. I'm making clear. You can spend years and not hear from anyone. You have to trust the Lord. So hear me on this. If you cannot get personally validated at the cross, you will burn in ministry. And it's the one person who knows you perfectly and actually, strangely enough, wants to praise you. Practically, and that's what he tells us here, the practical validation for our ministry will be the fruit. That's what he tells us here. You, Paul speaking to the Corinthians, you are my letter of commendation. And understand, they've gotten to a point where someone says, if you really are called, if you really are qualified, then you had to have gone to these schools to get a master's or a doctorate in divinity. Which, by the way, I still, don't, I still can't figure out how you could get a doctorate to become divine. But that's just because I'm not one of those people and I'm an ignoramus and that's okay with me. But this is what Jesus taught us. Every good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's a little concerning. 
Let's say that Shirley was allergic to apples. Be dangerous at our house. We have this giant tree. Occasionally it puts out an apple you can eat. But I guarantee you everything that grows on that tree is going to become an apple. We also have a mint plant in our backyard. I love mint. I love making tea with it. I love making all kinds of things with strange as it is. Now, let's say Shirley isn't allergic to mint, but she is allergic to apples. Well, I can always say, Shirley, this plant over here, no matter what you pluck, you pluck from it, it's going to be mint. You'll never get an apple from this tree. You'll never get mint from that other one either. So no matter how long you wait on the other tree, a mint leaf isn't going to grow on it. And for her, she knows to stay away from one and stay near the other because of that purpose. And Jesus tells us that if you really want to look and see what type of ministry a person really is bearing, look behind them. Look at their family, their wife, their husband, their children. Look at the people who have had the closest relationship with them. We've had people that have shown up at the churches that we've been part of in, in times past, and they have had a history of destroying churches, taking down churches, throwing accusation after accusation, tearing down, by the way. And one place there was this couple, and they were like, they went to this Christian school, and then the Christian school wasn't anymore. They went to the church that came from the Christian school. That church isn't there anymore. And then they showed up at our church, and I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And they were like, we're ready to come over here and lead. Show us what position. I says, your position at this moment is left out. You are going to sit and listen, and we're going to pray that things change. And strangely enough, they didn't. They, they, they were just the same. And the reason I say that is, it's when you look at what's behind an individual and what you see is destruction after destruction, insecurity after insecurity, you know, whatever it is. You know, I'm not talking about honest opposition. You'll always get that from people. People will be people. But do you see people saved? Do you see people encouraged? Do you see people instructed? Do you see people challenged? When I look behind a person who clearly exercises prophetic gifts, I don't see somebody, by the way, that's just waving their hands and going out and eating a bug. Actually, that's just in pretty much any seven-year-old boy. What I see is a person that is exhorted and encouraged and challenged to live a life of holiness in Christ. Because that really is the ministry of a prophet. When I look at a person who's a teacher, I look back and I see the people behind them. Are they accurately and well taught? When I look at a person who's a pastor, I look back behind them and do I see people that are safe in the church? Do I see a challenge for them to grow, to be lifted up and to become people who are servants in Christ? And you'll see with every one of us, if you look behind you. Now, here's the good news. That God is constantly changing us. At the beginning of Paul's ministry, what Paul had behind him was a bunch of people that wanted to kill him. And we had no, no commitments to Christ. But as Paul continued to grow, more people gave their life to Christ. More churches began to be planted. And Paul really started to better exercise his gifts. From a, per, from a perspective of validation, beloved... Let us pray that if you have, here's the good news, God can cut you off of what you're a part of and merge you onto the good roots. And that's what he tells us. That's the beautiful thing about what's happened to us as Christians. 
The Jewish people aren't the root. God's the root. They're a branch, and we're a branch, and we have been then grafted in. And if you're grafted into Christ, I would expect to bear the fruit of Christ, wouldn't you? The only reason why you wouldn't bear fruit is you're not hanging up on the branch anymore. You've pulled yourself off, which is a very bad idea. We had a drummer back when we had gone to Italy on a couple of our trips, our our band tours. And on this one, it was one of those where this particular uh, gentleman, um, Marco, invited us to go and pick olives. And we could pick these olives. It was a real sweet deal. And it was just in October, so it was sort of the end of the the, uh, olive season. We were going to pick them, and we were going to take them and have them pressed. And we were going to first press olive oil. such a really great thing. And we went to this particular olive grove. And on this olive grove, he'd be like, okay, now watch this one. Be careful of this one. And, And for whatever reason, and this is a classic drummer thing, but Daniel doesn't meet any of this criteria. It's weird that he's a drummer at all. But he, like, he just had to be at every border, every envelope. He had to push it, this particular drummer. Including, by the way, when he got to the edge of a branch and the entire branch broke off. And, of course, the pastor was trying to be very kind about it. One of the guys was, by the way, an uh, agricultural guy. So he actually used to work among trimming trees and stuff. So he tried to graft the tree back on. But you could tell within a couple of days that it wasn't grafted back on. By the way, that, that drummer would get up on another branch and break that one, too. But that, we're not bitter. Anyways, so follow me on this. The point of it is, is that you could tell, even though it was still, still green, that it wasn't attached, because the first thing is, when everything else was still having its latest buds, it wasn't going to bud. Because it took to draw from the sap for that to happen. And if you want to be fruitful, and it's only in due season, God may be strengthening you, may be budding you, he may be flourishing you, he may be healing you. Know this that the fruit that you will bear will be the testimony of your real ministry. You can equip the called, but you can't call them. That's God's job. So from a perspective of validation, our first thing in our first three verses, Paul says, from a practical perspective, you should be the clearest proof of of God's calling on my life because you are the very fruit of the endeavor. And that takes us to verse 4. In verse 4, we get to the second area. And I remind you, in every one of these, there's a personal and then a practical. The second one is the area of sufficient. Do you see the word there in chapter in verse 4? Look at it with me. Verses 4 to 6, it says, And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers. You think he's getting a point across here? Now, please hear me. Paul is making clear here something that is in opposition to the people who are actually challenging Paul. And this is the opposition, that they were all that. That's the problem. Paul is saying, listen, from a personal perspective, my sufficiency is from God. Now, please hear me. What that means and please, please hear me with your heart. Is that I have to admit I'm not enough. I'm not enough in myself. I'm not enough to make anything good happen. Now, Paul will come to that conclusion later in his life. He'll say, I know that in me, that's in my flesh, nothing good dwells. I don't think Paul's being falsely modest here. I think Paul's just being honest. And I think every one of us could pump out a statement like that in a moment like that. But really, if we think about it, 
I don't know how many of us would be honest ever to say, I think that in me nothing could dwell. Now, please hear me. There's a personal and a practical. If you don't know Christ, I'd like you to think for a moment of every person out there that's calling themselves an atheist. They have to be all that. They have to be sufficient in themselves because there's no one for them to call out to. So they have to walk around and think that they are the end of it, that they are the sufficiency of it. Literally, the word for sufficient, by the way, is the word hikanos. Hikanos means to arrive. And the idea of it is what gets me to the end? And I'd like you to think that from a perspective of somebody who doesn't trust God at all, it is them. And you're addicted and you want to be free from it. You hate yourself and you want to be different. You're a person and you want to see your life better than it is at the moment. You want to see it farther than it is at the moment, more productive, more whatever than it is at the moment. And you think, if only I could, I did, I tried, I did, then I'll get us up. But the problem is you're back to that first group of people, right? Where if I do it, maybe God will respond at best. And Paul's saying, I'm not saying that I'm sufficient. I'm not saying I'm the man. That's not the point. From a personal perspective, I first remember I was validated at the cross. See that order? Because I'm validated at the cross, I know how loved and how precious I am in the sight of God. And because I know how precious I am in the sight of God, I don't have to prove to God I'm anything because he loves me the way I am. My sufficiency is in God. I am enough in the sense that I'm enough to say yes to God, and that's it. It's all Him. And I love that because I can rest. I don't have to carry the universe on my shoulder. How about you? You know, though I have a responsibility to my choices, God is still sovereign. And I know this. That at the end of the night, I could rest my head on the pillow. And even when I've, made, I've done some stupid thing or said some dumb thing or whatever, I know God will still make it good because he promised that because he said that all things work to the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, I know that. And I know that even if I don't understand, that's the greatest time for me to exercise my faith because it's like, God, I don't understand how this is going to work out to my good or to the good of all those who love you, but I do know it's going to. And what happens is somehow in it, I'll say, God, I'm, I, whatever you want me to do, tell me. And if you're not going to tell me anything, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to sit here and wait on you. And there's something pretty amazing about that. But hear me, there's also a practical side to that. Look at what it says again. And we have such trust through Christ, toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Listen, no, it says to think of anything of ourselves from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient as ministers, literally deacons or errand runners of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, because the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Now, please hear me in this. The Ahos. If, and when we live, we live in this little town for a little bit called Willows. You ever heard of it? It'd be weird if you did. Most people in California had never heard of Willows. Matter of fact, people that lived 20 miles away hadn't heard of Willows. Willows was one of those towns that someone forgot about while it was being built. It's off of a major highway. And so it's basically a place that you pull over to fill up with petrol. 
get some kind of greasy food, and off you go in a handful of houses. The good news is it's a cheap place to live. After all, who wants to live there? It's full of bugs. I mean, like bug factories were there. They ship them out to the rest of the world. I remember driving. I, I, I would worked in Chico, California, and it was 25 minutes away, 40 minutes away on a, on a traffic day. And I would literally, and I'm not exaggerating, I would literally have to pull over at least once on my way home to scrape the bugs off of my windscreen or else everything looked like a Monet painting. I couldn't see. It was that bad. But I remember this about Willows. Because it was this kind of tiny little town, and I don't know how many of you have ever seen things like Sheriff Maybury. I can't remember what that show was called way back. Andy Griffith's show. Or those kind of things. Where everyone's kind of talking like this. You know, it's like a little town, and nobody really knows how to do anything. And the guy tries to pull out his gun. He's probably going to shoot himself first. You know, that kind of thing. Well, that's kind of what this town was like. We had this house where... It was extremely large, had a huge hornet's nest in it, we would learn later. But also, it's like one of the floors literally was at about a 10-degree angle. It's kind of fun. It's like, so you could actually, you know, everything kind of wound up on the other side of the room sooner or later. And just, that's just kind of the way the houses were built. I just, I think I've painted the picture, right? I mean, it's almost like you open up the doors and you almost hear, boom, ba dee da boom, ba dee You almost hear that, you know, or, oh, you almost hear that as you look out. And so, and, and so here I am. I, I will walk out. And one night, my wife wakes me up in the middle of the night. And she goes, do you hear that sound? And it sounds like. I'm like, what in the world is that sound? It sounds like somebody's scraping something against gravel. Well, it isn't that at all. And we look out the window. And right across the street from us is a house that's on fire. Now, we're not talking about one of those where there's a little bit of smoke. We're talking about the entire house is on fire. And I'll be honest. There's a part of us at first. Well, you know, my wife, who tends to think of things a little bit quicker as an emergency, she, she kind of looks at it and she goes, oh, what do we do? What do we do? Well, the fire guys show up and the, the fire brigade shows up and it becomes like the funniest thing you ever saw in your life. Part of it was because none of these guys had ever, I'm sure they had gone to like fire brigade school or whatever, and they'd done their things or whatever. They've gotten some kind of badges. They learned how to drive the truck and it rang their bell and the whole bit, you know. But once they pulled up, they, I don't think they'd ever been to a fire in their life. So these guys, and I kid you not, one guy runs over, and as he runs over, they pull out this, and, and there's a couple hydrants. Those are the things that stick out of the ground. You plug water, you know, the hoses into. And the guy runs over, and there were a couple of those on our street. The guy kind of runs out, and he goes like this, and he gets there, and he's standing there by himself with this hose. And as he's standing there with this hose, he goes, because the nozzle's what blocks it, right? Because he's like, and nothing's coming out of it. Do you know why nothing's coming out of it? He hadn't thought about the other part that was really important. Do you know what part that is? the part that hooks it up to something where the water is. So he had the hose. He had the vehicle for the water. It was positioned in the right place. And he was ready. But he had no water. Now, ultimately, what would happen is, is that somebody would go, hey, 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 Bob, whatever, hey, hey, you know, or Chad or Critter or whatever his name would be. And, you know, oh, 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 and they'd hook that thing up. Okay, I let it rip. And the guy let it rip. Now, I don't know what happens, but it's like, if you know what a fire hose is like, it packs a punch, right? So he turns this thing on. It flies out of his hand. It's smacking him in the face. It's smacking the other guy. And, of course, I'm watching this. And my wife said, and I'm almost crying. I'm laughing so hard. 
And she's like, what do we do? What do we do? I'm like, she's like, should we hose down the house? And just as she says that, the hose flies our direction, hoses down our house. And I'm like, looks like they got it covered. You know. And I mean, ultimately, they'd get a few guys and they'd get in and they'd finally get that thing and start, you know, the whole house was, it was done. There was no, by the time they actually got the water on, it was too late for anything. The good news is it didn't touch our house. Here's the point. Hose is a great thing, but without a detachment, it's just a hose. It's just an empty vehicle. Does that make sense? So understand something. The water still need to get from the hydrant to the house. The water was there. And it was there in abundance. But it didn't have a vehicle to get it. You couldn't just go, all right, go. Go to the house. You had a hose to hook it up. Does that make sense? And the hose was sufficient to get the water from the hydrant to the house. But the hose isn't sufficient in itself to get the water to the house. Does that make sense? Hear me, that's exactly what Paul is saying here about being sufficient. He's going, I'm not saying we're sufficient in ourselves. If we were sufficient in ourselves, I'd hook the hose up to me. But he says, I'm the hose. See, the Lord has made me, he's built me in a way. And he's built you in a way that what he wants to shower Through that, he will do. And he's built you in a way that's different than he's built me in a way so that what he wants to torrent through you or however he wants to do that will be different than it is for me. My toothpaste tube has a nozzle. It's not the same as the fire nozzle on the hose. Could you imagine? It's like I go like this and I press it and it's like... And it breaks my mirror and my toothbrush goes flying out of my hand. Of course, it comes at a much more gentle pace, gentler pace because of that. Gentler? Is that a word? Or more gentle? You get the idea. And maybe that's what God's called you to be. Some of you I know better. Some of you I know better. You'll be fire hoses. Some of you will be garden hoses. Still useful. You can still use the sprayer on a garden hose, knock over the lawn gnomes. That's part of, in part of the fun. But, you know, but if you do it too hard, you're going to have no grass left or anything. You'll be ripping your trees out of, the, of your garden. Does that make sense? But listen, what Paul says in regards to sufficiency is quite simple. What he says is, God has built me. From the moment I said yes to him, I became his project. And the way that he builds me, he is my, personally, he's my sufficiency. But he's made me sufficient in him for the ministry. He's built me to do what he wants me to do when I'm attached to him. Does that make sense? So I'd say it this way. Personally, God's my sufficiency. I'm not enough. I'll never be enough. And that's okay with me. It'll never be about me. The moment I start making it about me, we're both in trouble. The same with you. I'm convinced one of the greatest weapons the enemy has is a mirror. Because either you'll think you're all that, and that's dangerous, or you'll think you're not that at all, and that's dangerous. But in either case, you don't think 
the way that you don't put the balance in it, which is I'm sufficient in Christ. You'll say, I'm just terrible. I'm a nothing. Well, we'll see in a moment when we get to the end of this, that in the end of this, the balance is not just who I am, but who I am in Christ. That's the part the enemy doesn't want you to look at. Who am I? I'll be honest, rubbish, but I am infinitely loved rubbish. In me, I'm a jar of clay. But in Christ, I am a treasure chest. And that's what he tells us here. So follow me on this. Paul was, we're sufficient in ourselves. The people that Paul is going against, that's what they were saying. And you know this, the way that you can sniff this out even today is when you see that their name gets top billing on the, on the poster, on the, uh, you know, on, on the flyer, the way that that works. And so what you'll see is the Lucas Miranda Power Hour. I've come to help you. The Sam Town Miracle Time. Sam goes, you know, poverty spirit come out. And you see this. And it's like God gets second billing like it's Sam Town and God backing him up. But is it really who is sufficient? Where is your sufficiency? Now, obviously, I'm not in any way assuming that or trying to claim that of Lucas or of Sam. I'm picking them because it seems absurd. But it's still the way, think about it. Isn't this how we could play it out when we give testimony of something? The first time we're so blown away, God gets the top billing. All I know was that I was a damsel in distress and God stepped in and boom. I was delivered. And then after about five times of telling it, it was like, well, it was a little rough and I did this and I did a little of this and I prayed this way and I said this and I fasted and oh, I got on my knees and all that. And then God stepped in and all of a sudden God did second billing. Do you see how that kind of works its way into the, the testimony? And after a while, you're somehow the hero instead of the one that got rescued. And people go, oh my goodness, Shirley, I just have to do what Shirley does. And all of a sudden we're getting little braces that say WWSD. What would Shirley do? But sufficiency? Is it cool to be able to say, I'm not enough, I don't have to be? I don't have to be all that? Jesus is all that, and that is good enough for me? He's more than all that. He is over-sufficient. He is abundant for both of us. So I don't have to worry about it. So look at it tells us here, not that we are sufficient in of ourselves, to think that we are being anything of ourselves. Our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient as ministers. God built me as the fire hose, and you are getting blasted. And someone goes, hey, well, don't be a Bible beater. I'm going to beat you with my Bible. At least you know where I stand. Now, I'm going to lovingly do it. and Prayerfully, it will feel like a pillow fight, but you're going to get the word of God. Don't expect a hug when what you need is a slap in the head. But by the way, I expect that of myself, too. He made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Now, the rest of this text now pulls us to the point of the two texts. Now, of these two covenants, please follow me on this now because we're almost done. It appears to me, I remind you, that there's one group and they way go off on the super liberal, whatever you want, God's is going to forgive you thing. So Paul nails that down. But then there's also the group that's on the heavy legal trip. 
Well, that's bringing the law back in. And what happens is now that you're saved, if you pray this many times, God's going to bless your day. If you read this much, God's going to bless your day. If you don't, you're going to spill something on your dress. You're going, to, you're going to be around somebody that you really like with a piece of spinach hanging off your tooth. Whatever it's going to be. And it's like somehow that's God paying you back. You know what that is? That's called karma. That's not scripture. Karma is the opposite of grace. Karma is an Eastern philosophy where like, hey, let's face it. There's, it's just kind of common sense in the sense you do dumb things. You're going to get you're like you slap people. They're going to be mean to you. How weird is that? Call that karma. I call that common sense. You drive like a maniac and you get in accidents. How weird is that? But beyond all of that, there's grace. So please hear me. That compares the idea, and here's what it is. Remember we talked about putting the law before the relationship? Putting the relationship before the law. With every relationship, there is protocol. That's the fun of it. 18 years ago, almost 17 years ago, 18 years ago, I learned that my wife was pregnant. 17 years ago, I met this beautiful little girl. And all kinds of laws, all kinds of things happened. Laws that were written in my heart. I was working three jobs, three full-time jobs. I was the administrator, well, not I was the fine arts director at two Christian schools. I was in a band that was on tour and playing regularly. And I was pastoring the church there in the central coast of California. Now, my wife's gloriously independent, so she never had any complaints about it. I would be the one like, hey, are we spending enough time there? She'd say, yeah, it's fine. But, but part of it was she taught at one of the schools where I taught at, the one that I was at the most. But it would be common for me, to, for instance, to teach school on a Friday, uh, and then when school was done, head out with the band and do a concert on Friday night, do a concert on Saturday night, and show up just in time to set up on Sunday morning for church. If you think I have energy now, nothing compared to where I used to be. You could hit a thousand homes with where I came from. And in all of that, that's the way we lived for nearly seven years. Until I saw this beautiful little blonde baby. That was jaundice, so she looked tan. She had a full head of hair. I think I might have then too, and that was about it. The moment she was born, it all started falling out. But during that first year, laws were written on my heart like this. I can't live this way anymore. I can't live with this many places to be when I have a little girl that's in my house. My wife and I had struggled for seven years. I I don't know if this will challenge you or, or, or what, but we struggled for seven years to have a consistent devotion schedule between us. We had our personal ones, but having them corporately was a real battle trying to to find time where we both could sit down together. And probably part of it was how busy we were. Where we could both sit down and read the Bible. And, you know, there were these scripts you'd read and these books to read and all these other things. And and it was like, you know, and finally, the, the moment Tay was born, I was like, that changes now. Whatever has to happen, that changes now. And we're going to be in the Word every night. And we're not going to, you know, well, how about we don't, I know this was so weird. I was like, so why don't we just try reading the Bible? You'd think that would be a basic. You'd think that'd be a, no, no. Like, you know, like, let's just read. So in the beginning, I'd read a paragraph. She'd be asleep. Then she'd read a paragraph, and I'd start falling asleep. And so finally, I'm like, what if we read back and forth every other verse? That way no one could fall asleep unless the verse was long. 
We've been doing that ever since. But understand, it wasn't like God said, if you, can you imagine if he said, if you get a consistent devotion time together and you quit two of those jobs, I'll give you a baby? Do you see the difference? You see, God didn't even have to tell me those things, though I do believe it was him in his spirit writing it on my heart. I chose those things because I love that girl. And they never seem, honestly, they never seem like sacrifice. I told one of the schools the next day, I'm not coming back next year. The other school, I, I waited a week until the administrator came back. The band, I sat down and said, boys, we're done. This is it. Because the moment I sat and said, Lord, bless me out of this, you pick where you want me to be. And he said, no, Tony, you pick. I'm going to give you a choice. And it wasn't a choice, beloved. This is what I love to do. I would have done the others only because he told me to out of obedience. But the moment he's like, I want to give you the desire of your heart, I'm like, well, that was no choice. And he knew that. How could I have imagined what would have brought me here to you guys? How thankful I am for that. How utterly overwhelmed with gratitude I am for that. But please hear me. The laws that were written on my heart were birthed out of a relationship. We joked about Lauren and Christian, if those of you are familiar with them. She's basically Disney as a girl. If she were any more Disney, she'd have round ears over her head. He's an accompanist. Always been, apparently. He's like, that's sort of what he does. Please hear me in this. Because of their relationship, he has learned every Disney song on piano. And I asked him, would you have learned any of those had you not met Lauren? And he's like, no, of course not. See, it wasn't like if God said, if you do, if you learn all these songs, I'll get you Lauren. Because he cared for Lauren and because he desired Lauren, he learned no songs. And it wasn't like they were a sacrifice to him. Do you see the difference? The difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is exactly that. The old covenant is kind of if you, then God will. The new covenant is because God did, you should. And that's the blessing here. So listen to this. If the ministry of death, verse 7, written and engraved on stones was glorious. See, even the old ministry had a glory to it. So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. The glory, by the way, that was passing away. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be more glorious? In the first case, it's the law. Or as we see it here, written and engraved on stones. On the second case, it's the Spirit. So I ask myself, in regards to my endurance, in regards to my transcendence, me getting through it, it's either going to be of the law, I obey because I'm told to obey, or it's going to be by the Spirit. And personally, that's how I endure anything, is by God's Spirit. Because I have a relationship with God, in the craziest moments in my life where I thought I was going to lose every one of my girls at one point or another within a season of six months and they were all on, de- on death's bed in one way or another, I didn't jump into the law. I didn't say, well, if I prayed a little bit more, we'll be okay. I threw myself into the arms of God and I said, God, I've got to trust you that even if they all die on me, 
you have them. They belong to you. And I belong to you. Because I belong to you and I'm falling in your arms. You can carry me, Lord. You can carry me. Could you imagine losing your children? Losing my wife? When the Lord told us that we were to come here, there were over a thousand people that I was going to say goodbye to at a church that we had planted. But I knew that they belonged to him. The church was his. And I belonged to him. And he would carry us here. What allows you to endure the hardest moments will never be the law. If you're trusting in the law, you will die in it. But if I trust in the person, it all changes. Because if I trust in the law, what I'll say is these bad things have come upon me because I haven't done enough. And then I'll start beating myself up to say, if only I prayed more, if only I gave more. I have a pastor friend of mine that he has gone to the, to the hospital. He doesn't go anymore. He'd go to the hospital in the IC room three times in a week. He was called to the IC room because of the people. That's intensive care. That's the A&E where life and death is on the line. And three different times he prayed for somebody and they died in front of him. The assistant pastors at that point said, hey, 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 from this point on, we'll go. If every time you pray for someone, they die in front of you. But understand in that, it isn't him. It isn't like he, could you imagine at the beginning, it would be easy to go, well, what did I pray wrong? What's wrong in my life? Should I have fasted more? Is there some sin in my life that when I lay hands on someone, they die? Or was it just their time? So when he's telling me this story at a pastor's conference, I go, let me ask you, tell me about the three people you're dealing with. He's like, one was on death's door because of AIDS. Did they know the Lord? Yes, they did. They, the AIDS, interestingly enough, brought them to a place where they knew they weren't enough, and that caused them to cry out to the Lord. The other two were over 80-something years old. Did they know the Lord? Absolutely. What did you pray? God, take away their illness and their pain and their suffering. And they go, sounds like he did exactly what you asked. None of them are suffering anymore. They all know him. The guy doesn't have AIDS anymore. And the two people that are over 80 aren't over 80 anymore. Not in that sense. Here's the point. If you're trusting in the law, you will always review your tactics to see what you did wrong. If you're trusting in the relationship, you'll be able to rest and say, God, I trust that you're going to make good of this even when I don't understand it. And there's peace there. You will never ever have peace trusting in the law. So listen. The ministry of condemnation had glory. The ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Personally, my transcendence is the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? Practically, my ministry is not the ministry of condemnation or of the law. My ministry is the ministry of righteousness. So hear me, hear me, hear me on this. Because this is fundamental. You're called to ministry, so here you are on Ministry 101, and I want to get you tight on this with me. Our ministry, dikaiosune, to make people, or to be a vehicle to make people right with God. Do you see the difference? There are those that feel like their whole ministry is to tell you what you're doing wrong. 
and you feel like a jerk by the time. Hey, there's some people I could listen to. It doesn't matter how good my walk is. I'm going to feel like I should go to hell after listening to them. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you have some of those. If not, I can give you a couple of them if you really, you know, anyway, you don't need them. And there are people like, you know, there are some that feel like unless, you know, I, I, I really, obviously I'm a horrible heathen unless I've sold everything and given it to them and then gone off to India to live a life of poverty among the, the lepers or something. I mean, and there's, there's, you know, the point of it's this. Now we can kind of say, here's the law, here's what it is, and we could read through all of this. I mean, think about what we do on Sundays. We could go through numbers and say, well, what are you doing with the feast? And what are you doing with this? And how are you doing on your sacrifices? And how are you doing on your reading and all that? But if you can't bring it to Jesus, well, then how are you going to make it right when you're wrong? If my ministry, and that's the practical part of the ministry for every one of us, is getting people right with God, then there's a ministry of life there that transcends. Because the moment you're in God's hands, man, you've never been my problem. And I trust that if I could get you to the Lord, He can fix you. That's the beauty here, beloved. Personally, the transcendence, my endurance is by God's Spirit. Practically, my ministry is a ministry of righteousness. Do you get it? Well, here's the problem. Notice what it says. It says that they both have a bit of glory. There's a problem there. But it says that if what passing away was glorious, what remains is even more glorious. Verse 12. Since we have this hope, we use great boldness. Because I know that if you say yes to Jesus, it's a done deal, I could be bold. The product of being a minister of righteousness is I could be bold about it. And so here's the deal. Catch me on this. We're out there and we're like, I don't know if I can really share Jesus with someone. You need to be made right with God. Someone's like, but I'm this and I'm that. I'm like, yeah, but you're not right with God. Jesus makes you right with God. I'm preaching that. Oh, don't, you know, oh, are you going to go preaching at me? Yes, I am. So now that we're clear on it, what are you going to do about it? You know people will respect that. You don't respect people that spend three hours trying to get to the point, do you? You ever have somebody and they have to confront you on something, but for, for, for two hours or three hours, they're like, you know, I'm a know you're a night person and all this. And you can't even hear it because you know they're like waiting for the moment. And you're like, you know, but and you're like, but what? You should just start, start with that, then say the nice stuff afterwards. But what if you never said the but, but you knew it was there? Wouldn't you feel like that conversation was a bit of a waste? And that's what we do if we don't share Jesus. So listen, unlike Moses, verse 13, it says, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel couldn't look steadfastly at what's passing away. How is it that we always feel a need to hide what is fading? Physically, we'll nip and tuck and paint and suck and we'll cover it up and we'll do this and we'll tattoo it and we'll throw in some more hair and we'll do whatever. And we'll do that in ministry too. We'll nip and tuck and paint and suck and do all that and paint a whole new thing on it. And what it'll look like this time is it's a whole new movement. It's on our whole new program. It's a whole new building. It's our whole new upgrade. And it's like, and now, church 6.1. What's the difference? We're thinner and bigger. Really, is that what that is? You get the point. But Moses, even though his ministry was fading, because his ministry was of the law, there was a veil over it. And he goes, that's the problem. You veil what's fading. You don't veil what isn't. Our ministry is to pull the veil off. He says, and that same veil lays on the heart of every person who's trying to do it by what they do. They're trying to do it by their works. It's still there. They can't see things clearly. Explain grace to somebody who's trying really hard. 
explain a lifeboat to a person who's convinced they need to swim to shore, even though the lifeboat's right next to them. You're like, all you need to do is grab a hold of that, and the rest will happen on its own. But that's not enough. I need to paddle. I need to kick. I need to paddle. I need to kick. I need to. No, you don't. But I haven't earned this boat. Well, we're, now that we're clear on that, take it anyways. Do you want to argue over that now? You are drowning. And the veil remains. But the moment that you turn to Christ, have you ever seen so clearly in your life? And therefore, we're being transferred from glory to glory. Not like glory to better glory, but from a bad or from a fading glory to a permanent glory. That's what we're being transferred into. And therefore, final point in this, verse 1 of the next chapter. Since this is our ministry, a ministry of making people right, we don't lose heart. Not only do we have hope, not only do we have boldness, but we also have encouragement. Because we've renounced the things of shame. Why would I want to do those things again? Why would I want to live in that place saying, oh, God will just forgive it anyways, when I have a relationship? I don't want to hurt God's heart. I have a relationship with him now. And so as a result of that, I'm appealing to your conscience, beloved, and to mine too. Hear me on this. The God of this age is still trying to blind people. He's still trying to keep the glory of the gospel from shining. And here's the worst part. He doesn't have to to most people because the gospel isn't even going out. Can you be honest with me? How many people out there in London do you really think have actually heard the gospel? That Jesus died for your sins, just as Scripture promised, was buried on the third day, rose from the dead, just like Scripture promised, and was seen by a lot of people, and deserves to be your Lord and Savior. Say yes to him. How many people do you think know they have a choice to make there? So listen. Our ministry is to shine that light. And it will shine so bright, it will appear and pierce right through that veil till what they'll want to do is pull it off. So hear me as we bring this to close. Because it will talk about that verse, earthen vessels is the last thing. It tells us in Romans, and actually in John 3, that this is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because they wouldn't step into the light because if they step into the light, their evil deeds would be exposed. So, right, I mean, let's face it, you could do a lot more in the dark than you can in the light and still not be seen for it. But it says those that actually do love the light will step into the light that you would be clearly seen that what has been done has been done through God. So this is the way it works. The light of God's truth, the same God that caused light to shine through the darkness is the same God we're talking about here. And there are people walking in darkness and the light shines and what happens is they close their eyes. Ah, I can't see it. I can't see it. Oh, but they're the smart ones. And they're like, I see so clearly. You don't understand. I know everything. Because the weight of the world's on their shoulders because they think they have to be all that. I don't have to be all that. My God's all that. And more. So they're, oh, they're, and they're stumbling and they're bumping into things and they're hurting themselves and other people because they don't know where they're going because their eyes are closed. And we could think that our ministry is to tell them how stupid they are for walking around with their eyes closed. But nobody opens their eyes that way. Can I challenge you? Give them a good reason to open their so they're walking around like this, and you're going, yes, Lord, woo-hoo! And they're like, uh. And you know that point where somebody's like looking through their almost closed eyelids but trying to make it look like their eyes are closed? You see it on the train all the time if you're not careful. You're like, oh, God, you're so good. I just want to thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You're so good. And I just want to walk with you. And, and they're like, uh, and they're trying to not make it look like they're looking at you. 
but their eyes are just open enough. And you're giving them a good reason to open their eyes. Because sooner or later, when that light pierces through, and you know this because your eyelids are veils, but how many of you wake up when the sun comes up if your curtains are open? Because light hits those eyelids enough to say, hmm, something's out there. I should go see what that is. If you were in the middle of the night and you saw light kind of flashing and then flashing back, you'd probably open your eyes and go, who is it? Though your eyelids were there, enough light hit that veil to tell you there's something out there. Well, if we don't shine the light of the gospel and walk Jesus in front of these people, they'll never have a reason to open their eyes and they'll spend the rest of their life walking around with their eyes closed. Can I just say, celebrate Jesus with me? But here's the thing, and this is how we close it. It says, this is what we have. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the glory or the credit would not be in us, but in God. See, what makes, and by the way, I took a a walk today at the British Museum. I actually really like walking by the British Museum. You know, there are times where I just, I've just got to go and walk by that place and see where Esther Haddon's gates are and all those things and kind of, oh yeah, that's cool. And oh, there's the, not Rosetta Stone, but the Rosetta Stone, the, the mock-up or whatever, you know, and all those things. And, oh, there's some more Egyptian things, and watch this. And just the people alone are the masterpieces who walk in, and, oh, you know, they've got to take their pictures. It's just fun stuff there. And, of course, today, this, this time, I, you, you see enough movies, your life gets tainted by all kinds of things. You're in the Egyptian area. There's this whole thing with the gates and the whole thing like this. And it's like, I just think, and this is the gates of Kamun Ra, you know, or whatever. Um, that's from that at the museum. Anyways, but, but follow me in this. It's like, you know, you see all of these, these, these masterpieces and you see all these things and all these. And where in the world was I going with all of this? See what happened? Oh, it was this. Is that, you know, it's like the expose that they have right now was on the Ming Dynasty. And what is a Ming vase that's so expensive? It's a piece of ceramic. Painted, but it's a piece of ceramic. In my in-law's house, there's a piece of ceramic. It's about this high. And it comes around like this, and it's painted. It's well painted. And it's painted almost with the same kind of paint that they used with the Ming Dynasty. It's a little bit more contemporary. It's, got, it's kind of shaped like a bowl, as the Ming Vos is shaped like a bowl. This one has a little spout here. It's French. We call it a bidet. What makes one more precious than another? It's artistry or what it contained. See, understand something here. That what makes a vessel precious is what it contains. It doesn't have to be amazing on the outside if what it contains on the inside is precious. We have this treasure in an earthen vessel. The earthen vessel is ordinary. It's, matter of fact, unpainted and even crude. So that, beloved... People don't worship the container. It's a hose. If it works, it's a good hose. But it's a hose. And nobody looks at it and goes, look at the craftsmanship. Ah, this is champion it is. I mean, you look at it and you think, will it get the water through? But nobody worships the hose when the fire is put out. Beloved, please hear me. It's okay to be an earthen vessel because of what you contain. Or more clearly, who you contain. Now, Paul's point in it all is this. You're trying to evaluate 
the container. But it's what I contain that makes it so beautiful. You want to take a look at the ministry, look at what's in the look what look what's in the vase. We could pull off, you know, if spiritually we could sort of pull off the lid. What can we see inside there? What's God doing? Because that's what really matters. Because that's the part that can't help but work its way out if you crack. That's why he declares and demands that we should be broken. Because if we're broken, then there's cracks for him to shine through. And you're like, but I just want to be cult together. And God's like, yeah, but holding you together keeps, you, keeps me inside. But I don't want to stay inside of you. I want to start inside of you. And then I want to shoot out from you. Because you're supposed to be a fountain of living water, not a bucket. You're supposed to be so, you know, it's like, you know those places. You walk by it. Shantae and I walked by one of those the other day. And it's like, you know, it's like, though the fountain shoots up like this, there's a whole area of water around, that's wet around there, a whole lot of area other than where it shoots straight up. Because anytime the wind blows, it's going to get on something else. And we're supposed to be like that. And we're supposed to go, oh, I'm not going to preach at you. And I'm not going to Bible bash. And we've given all these terms as if somehow we're supposed to be like this little bubbling brook now so that we don't get anyone wet. God has called us to get everyone wet so they open up their eyes and start pulling back the veil and trust Christ. But for that to happen, can I just say it this way? Listen, worshiping Jesus, following Jesus, celebrating Jesus is messy. It's intended to be messy. So we get the mess of the love of Christ all over everyone around us. And that's your ministry. So listen, this is how we close it up, right? I'm validated at the cross. Have you been validated at the cross? Have you said yes to Jesus? Then you're validated at the cross. Your validation in your ministry will be the fruit that God bears through you. There you go. Sufficiency, you'll never be sufficient in yourself. Your sufficiency in mine is in God, but he's made you sufficient for the ministry he's called you to as long as you stay attached to him. There's your sufficiency. In regards to transcendence and endurance, personally, I endure through the Spirit, by the Spirit. The Spirit of God, and I trust God in that. His power. Practically, the ministry is one of righteousness, of reconciliation, making people right with God. That's my heart. And yours too. And all I am in that is a clay vessel, a jar of clay that holds the greatest treasure of the universe. And thus God wants to break me so that I could shine, so he could shine through, and that the glory will not be in me, but in him. And you too. That he would do the same. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. And Lord, here we are at Ministry 101, and we know you've called us to whatever in the ministry is going to be. But Lord, wherever we are tonight, whether we're trying to be sufficient and we recognize we can't be, whether the ministry is one that we've been so challenged by, Lord, that we're just trying to keep our head above water, but really we haven't really surrendered ourselves completely to you. Lord, my heart's desire for every one of us here tonight, me too tonight, as we'd start by getting validated at the cross, declaring you, Jesus, is our Savior and our Lord, and letting you take over our lives like you deserve to. And then in that, Lord, that you would do an amazing work in each of us. That you'd bear forth the fruit you intend as we cling to you. And that in doing so, we would find our sufficiency in you and know that you make us sufficient for the work you've called us to be. We are enough for what you want to do through us. 
In that, Lord, as well, I pray that you would cause us to endure, to endure in such a way, Lord, that we could trust you and rest in you and know that by your Spirit we can endure anything and that the ministry is one of making people right with you. That's what it is. Everything revolves ultimately about that, that we would all be right with you at every point and in every turn. Every law, every standard, every precept, every commandment, everything about ultimately bringing it back to you, Jesus, where we are made right with God. And in that, thank you that we can be vessels of clay and that's enough. Because the issue isn't us, it's what we contain or who we contain and that's you. Because the moment we said yes to you, you came and lived inside of us. And as you shatter us from the inside out, you shine through us and pour forth your living water upon anyone who comes near us. That's our heart's desire. And we may not want to be shattered, but can we ask, if you're going to break us, break us gently, but do so in a way so that you would get the glory. You would shine forth and transform every life in front of us. Every life in front of us. As you move us from a temporary glory to a permanent one. So Jesus, we confess you as the one who is our payment at the cross. You died on the cross to pay for our sins and our shame and our guilt. You were buried and rose again on the third day. And we say, Jesus, thank you for being our Lord and our Savior. Thank you for being more than enough. Thank you for being our sufficiency. Thank you for being our validation. Thank you, Lord, for being our endurance. Thank you for being the reason we're so precious. And in that, Lord, we just want to say, Lord, Savior, King Jesus, shine, flow, rule us, do what you want to do, but change the world around us by changing the world in us first and use us to the way that you want. Jesus, in your name, Amen.